stop. My life, it's a challenge. Every day I face new decisions, new crucial choices. I recognize what I choose to do today affects my future. I can't afford to waste my time in the dead-end cycle of mediocrity. Good isn't good enough. For me, it's all about best practices. Good morning. We're going to jump right on our horses and ride today. Our series is called Best Practices. I don't need to do an introduction because instantly when I tell you what best practice number four is, you're going to recognize the value whether you're a committed Christ follower or you're an agnostic. From that whole spectrum, you'll know how important this one is. It's think healthy. Think healthy. That's huge. Week one, it was get on the path, stay on the path, finish strong. Week two, you know, week three, these are things that we've talked about prepared instead of repair. And last week we talked about taking care of your body. But all of us understand the importance of thinking healthy. I'm going to do something extraordinary today. I'm going to take you to just one book in the Bible, one little four-chapter book. It is my favorite book in the Bible. If you were to get a hold of any of my Bibles, you would find that the book of Habakkuk is not worn out because I don't read Habakkuk all that often. I should, I guess. Or Haggai or Zephaniah, the minor prophets. But if you were to find Philippians in any of my Bibles, you will find the pages worn. These four chapters are so important to me. Because these four chapters, more than, as far as I know, any other place in the Bible, teach us how to think, how to think healthy. You should know that this book was written by an aging apostle, Paul, who was in prison because he had preached the gospel. And so as he is writing, I'm not sure, he must have been dictating because he is shackled to two Roman guards constantly. He is writing to people in a church at Philippi. And these are people who are going through very difficult times. In fact, they're being persecuted for their faith. So you can imagine that Paul, if, if he were like many of us, he could have written a story to the Philippians telling them how terrible his circumstances were and, and begging for sympathy because after all, he has tried to preach the good news of Jesus to the world and get the gospel around the world and instead he's incarcerated. And on the other hand, you could think he would write sympathy messages to the people at Philippi because they were going through difficult times for their faith. But the people at Philippi are very much like news springers. They were, they were excited followers of Jesus Christ. They were not whiners. They were not complainers. When you read these four chapters, you will find very little, if any, correction. Paul usually has to correct churches when he writes them, you know, deal with this problem, deal with this issue. He doesn't have to do, with the, do that with the Philippians because instead of griping about their issues, they were actually perhaps the most generous of all the churches that Paul dealt with. So Philippians is a love letter. It is a love letter between God's leader and God's people. And here is a man incarcerated for his faith, writing to people who are impoverished and going through difficult times. And he teaches them again and again in these four chapters how to think happy or how to think healthy. So I'm going to get on my horse and ride. If you're into note-taking, you, you, you want to get these things down. If, if you're not, if you're like me and you're not into note-taking, this talk will be up on the internet uh, or you can get the DVD. Actually, it's better to get a CD of me because you don't have to look at me. That's, you can just listen. But uh, we got several venues for you to get this information, but I want to give you seven keys to healthy thinking. And you should know that I didn't come up with seven. I found these. I added them up when I got through. These are seven keys from the book of Philippians, and all our scriptures will come from this powerful book today. So here we go. Key number one. And key number one is the foundation key. We'll spend a little more time here than we will with the others. Here's number one. Know what really matters and focus. Know what really matters in focus. If you and I are going to think healthy, we must start 
by knowing what really matters. Read with me, please. Philippians 1, verse 10. For I want you to understand. You do not understand with your elbow. You do not understand with your foot or your knee. You understand with your mind. This is mind stuff. I know this is early, okay? But <laughs> this is mind stuff. Paul said, I want you to understand. This is thinking. To understand there means to seriously examine. It means to stop, slow down the machinery, turn off all the electronic devices. Paul said, I want you to seriously examine what really matters. Greek words there mean what will be here after everything else has gone away. What will remain after it's tested. Paul said, and then notice that there's not a period there. He said, I want you to understand what really matters so that, look at this. You may live pure and blameless lives until the day that Christ returns. See, he was saying, I want you to think right so that you will live right. And the first thing that we see out of that is off-track thinking leads to off-track living. In other words, if I lose sight of what really matters, it is going to affect the way I live. Nothing purifies Nothing helps me live a better life than knowing what really matters. And I don't have time to develop this because you know already, any of my illustrations, you could come up with dozens of illustrations from your life that are better than mine. But isn't it true that many times we get obsessed over something, you know, a problem, and then a larger problem comes along, and we forget all about that first problem. Why? Because it didn't matter. And many times in life, we have our ladder, we're climbing the ladder of success. We find, up, find out it's leaning against the wrong wall because we're successful only to find out that we've lost our kids or we've lost our marriage in the process. What happened was we didn't know what really mattered. And it affected the way we lived and the choices that we made. And Paul said, I want you to know, what, I want you to understand what really matters so that you will live in two ways. First of all, he said, I want you to be able to live a pure life. The word for pure there actually is the word for the sun. You know, I can think I've shaved real well, real close. And then I'll get in my car in the sunlight if my sunroof is open and, or moonroof or whatever they call that thing. And the sun is shining down. I'll look in the mirror and I'll think, man, what a terrible. i look, look at, and first of all, I'll think, wow, ugly I am, you know. And, and then I'll see those whiskers that I missed because the sun has shined on it. And Paul is saying, look, I want you to know what really matters and understand and examine those things and live with those kinds of things be, so that your life, when the sun shines on your life, you will be what you appear to be. And then secondly, he said, you need to know what really matters so that you won't be harmful to other people. How many of us know hurtful people? They just do damage. It doesn't matter. You put them in any relationship, they're, they're just going to do damage. They'll do damage to a marriage. They'll do damage at work. They just do damage. Here's what you can do. You can draw a straight line between that person who does damage, as Paul is teaching us here. The problem is they don't know what really matters. And because they don't know what really matters, I mean, think how, how logical that is. When you examine their lives, you see the logic of this. They don't know what really matters, so consequently, if you're married to somebody who constantly does damage to you, isn't it true that he really doesn't get what matters? He doesn't know what matters to you. He doesn't know what matters to him. He doesn't know what matters to anybody. What is it that we say about that guy? We say he is oblivious, right? See, Paul is saying right from the beginning, I want you to know what really matters, well, if you're going to know what really matters, that means you're going to have to get rid of some stuff that doesn't matter, right? So don't be afraid to have a mental garage cell. <laughs> Paulus had to do that himself. 
because he's going to talk about the things that really mattered to him before he came to faith in Christ and now how he's changed his mind about some things. And for many of us at New Spring, it hasn't been long since we were traveling a different road and then we turned and we got on the road to follow Jesus and some of us are still going through that mental garage sale because it's stuff that used to be huge and that doesn't matter anymore. Listen to what Paul says. And I'm sorry, I'm talking 240 words a minute. I got seven points and the clock is ticking, all right? Paul said, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Don't raise your hand. How many of you had a garage sale? That is the great transfer of wealth in America. <laughs> you know, ah, these, are, these are expensive leather shoes, you know. I paid $175 for these shoes, one, and now I'm going to put 75 cents on them. Now I just want somebody to come take them away. Somebody comes along. Will you take 35 cents for these? You're saying, are you kidding me? Take them away. I'll pay you 35 cents to take them away. Paul said, I used to count these things as important. They, they were things that mattered to me, but now they don't matter anymore. In fact, look at his language. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. If you and I are going to think healthy, and guys, i got to tell you, Mark needs this message more than anybody here today. Okay, you're not listening to somebody who's got this all worked out. I'm working on this. You and I have to realize that we're not slaves to outdated goals and aspirations. How many of us are still tyrannized by some goal, some aspiration, Something that someone communicated to us when we were growing up. This is really important and you don't achieve it. And it still eats at you even though you're successful in so many areas. Don't be afraid to have a mental garage sale. All right, I'll tell you this next one, the terminology I invented. But I, I, think, it's, I think it's important, well, however you say this. Engage in electric focus. What do I mean by electric focus? Paul is going to give us, the, I think, the greatest tool for focusing. Look at Philippians chapter 3 verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus. I focus. I think those are powerful words right there within themselves. He's just saying, I focus. Focusing is selecting those things that truly matter and giving them the attention that they deserve. Paul said, I focus on this one thing. We know what that one thing is. But here's electric focus. Forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Electric focus is letting the past go. Paul gives us that powerful lesson. And for all of us here today, you and I cannot focus on what really matters until we let go of the past. That works in two different ways. I know some people who live in past successes. You ever see someone, maybe where you work, maybe they had a day in the sun, maybe they had a day when they were really productive, but they just shut down. And every time you talk to them, they're telling you about, oh man, the way the company was 10 years ago or what they did when they first came to the company. They're still living in the past. And Paul said, look, cut it loose. You got things to do. Focus on the things that really matters. I forget the past. If you've had successes in the past, don't live in the past. Give God thanksgiving that he allowed you to accomplish that. Look at the next assignment. On the other hand, if you've got failure in your past, and this is what keeps most of us from focusing, because we've got stuff that eats at us, stuff that we've done wrong, things that people have done wrong to us, Paul said, cut it loose. If you've ever fished with an open reel, you know how that you can get a backlash. It's important if you get a backlash just to cut it loose, restring the rod, and start fishing again. Paul is saying, I forget what's happened in the past, and I press on. As he continues to talk, continues to, talk to us about what really matters, he is going to tell us this, and this is huge, and, and I'm trying to learn this as I teach it. 
Paul says there are two things that really seem to matter that don't matter at all. There are things to mark when I think about my life, I think these things write my story. And Paul said, they don't write your story at all. They don't don't have anything to do with your story. Here is number one. I think sometimes setbacks write my story. I get that electric focus going. I say, okay, I'm going to forget the things that are in the past, and I'm going to press on, and I'm going to focus. But then as I start to do what I need to do, something goes wrong. Something comes unwound. Something I thought was promised to me is not delivered. Some circumstance or situation that we'll get to in just a moment turns out not to be there, and I get a setback. Here is the beauty. Could I just take a time out for a moment? Here is the beauty of being a Christ follower. God promises us, either through stories that he tells in the Bible and actually through statements that he makes, God promises us that everything that happens to a Christ follower who is God's man, God's woman, in God's time doing God's work, God promises that everything that happens to us, he will use it. If I were Satan, this is what would make me so angry. Because as soon as he concocts some kind of scenario to set back a child of God, God will turn around and use it as an HOV lane to get that child of God where he needs to be or where she needs to be. If I were Satan, that would just cause me to grip my teeth. He puts Joseph in prison back in the Old Testament. God brings him out of the prison to the palace. I mean, over and over and over, look at the stories. Now, here's the thing. What Paul is going to say is setbacks are not what they appear to be because God is at work in the setbacks. Where's Paul? Jail. What's his job? Get the gospel to the known world. More than any human being in any generation, Paul did that. 39 years he preached the gospel. 13 of those years, you know where he was? On ice, in jail, lock up. And I mean, you know, Paul is not like, he's not in one of these country club jails where he can watch television and, you know, get on the internet and everything like that. Paul is, Paul is in a really bad jail. He's in an ugly jail. He is, they, they chain him to Roman guards and they change those guards. I don't know every two hours, every four hours, every six hours. And so Paul is constantly incarcerated and chained. That's a setback, right? He writes to Philippians in chapter one, verse 12. I want you to know, that everything that has happened to me here in jail has helped to spread the good news. For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I'm in chains because of Christ. And because of my imprisonment, most of the believers here have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. Do you realize all the time that Paul was in jail, he's just, I mean, he's, he's got a captive audience. Every few hours, they change Roman guards. Paul talks to them all the time. After a while, you don't know who's chained to who. I mean, here comes the Roman guard. Paul, oh, man, I'm so glad to see you. I've been waiting for you all afternoon. Hey, have you ever heard about this guy, Jesus? I mean, every time they bring in new guards, he keeps winning them to Christ. No wonder the gospel spread through the Roman army. Then he won other people in jail, and people in jail had confidence, and they started sharing it with other prisoners. And Paul just said to the Philippians, hey, I know you've heard that I've been busted. But don't you spread any, you know, don't spend any time grieving for me because I want you to know that everything has happened here God is using it. Wow, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be something if Mark could begin to look at setbacks that way? See, I think setbacks matter. And Paul is saying, oh, you need, you need to know what really matters. Setbacks seem to matter, but they don't matter because God is still at work. The second thing that I think matters that Paul said doesn't matter is circumstances. And here's the thing that so many of us get messed up with. 
If we have unhappy circumstances, we're unhappy people. If we have fortuitous circumstances, then we feel like we can be happy. And here's what we say. We say things like this. When things get better, I will. When my circumstances improve, I'll be able to do this again. Right now, I'm shut down. Right now, my marriage is not going so well, so I'm just sort of closed down. Right now, I don't have a job, so I'm just sort of closed down. But if things improve, I will bloom again. Listen to what Paul said. I know, this is in chapter 4, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. That's a pretty wide set of parentheses, isn't it? I mean... Paul said, I know how to have a job. I know how not to have a job. I know how to live in the best part of town and the worst part of town. I know how to be hungry and I know how to be, you know, pushing away from the buffet table. Paul said, I know how to have almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret. Learn, remember, that's a head thing. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. I can do everything with Christ. You and I are not bound by circumstances. They seem to matter, but they don't matter. Because no matter what your circumstances are, if it's good times or if it's bad times, if you are a Christ follower, God's Holy Spirit lives within you. God is at work within you. And Paul said, you can do anything. How many of us remember the words of the authorized version that we memorized this verse in? I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength. See, Paul said, I want you to know what matters. I want you to understand the stuff that matters. So when you understand the things that matter, man, you are what you seem to be when the sun shines on your life. You don't ever have to worry about scrutiny. And then he said, you won't ever bring harm to anybody else because you will have lived your life thinking about the things that really matter. Let's roll on, number two. Here's the second key to healthy thinking. Negative, jealous, hurtful people are irrelevant unless you rent them space in your head. I'm thinking that we have, we're, we're laughing nervously because there have been a time, there's been time that we've thought that ne- negative, hurtful people uh, really do matter. And they want to matter. <laughs> you realize that? Negative, hurtful people want to matter to you. In fact, the whole reason why there's such pains in the rear end is they want you to lose your happiness because of them. Now, why is Paul talking to us about this? Here he is in jail, car- incarcerated, chained to Roman soldiers. Outside the prison, there are people, and they claim to be Christians. Isn't that something? You know what? i got to be honest with you. The people who have done me the most time in my lifetime have been people who claim to be Christians. Honest, honest to goodness. That's a fact. And I think Satan delights in counterfeiting Christians. So that other people will look at these and they well, they claim to be a Christian, they're a jerk. And, and I think really a lot of times people like that are the ones who get to us the most because we think, wow, that should be my brother, that should be my sister, but this person is causing me so much harm. And outside the prison, there were people who hated Paul so bad, we don't know exactly what they were doing. But in some fashion, they were trying to make Paul suffer even more in prison. It wasn't enough for them that Paul was in jail. They were doing ministry in a contorted, counterfeit kind of way in the hopes that they could inflict damage. Let's read what Paul said. Those others do not have pure motives as they preach about Christ. They preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely, intending to make my chains more painful to me. Look at the word intending here. It wasn't like, oh, we didn't know Paul. Was that getting under your skin? I mean, they did what they did, intending, intending. You're going to have people like that in your life. They intend to do you harm. 
They're jealous, they're hurtful, they're negative. They intend to get your job. They intend to make life difficult for you. They go out of their way. They will actually suffer in order to bring pain to you. Most people are going to be there. And so Paul is writing to the church about, to the church at Philippi, and he's telling them, you know what, outside the prison, there are people that hate my guts, and they're trying to make my life even more miserable by what they're doing. And you could think that Paul is writing to Philippian Christians and saying, don't you feel bad for me, because here I am in jail, and, and all those people outside the jail that claim to be Christians are trying to make my life miserable. Oh, I love verse 18. He said, look at this, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Can you and I grasp that today? Because usually when we get somebody who's trying to do us damage, and some of us, the reason why you can't think healthy and you can't focus on what really matters is you've got an ex who does everything she can or everything he can to make your life miserable. You've got somebody at work that does everything they can to make your life miserable. And you know what they do? They take you away from, number one, understanding what really matters. You can't focus on what really matters because you're trying to make your life hell on earth. But the thing to do is to come to the place where you can say, you know what, it doesn't matter. They want to matter, but they don't matter. Do you know that God never tells you that you have to rent out difficult people space in your brain? That is not the Christian thing to do. I sometimes say, well, that's the Christian. No, it's not. If you got somebody that's deliberately hurtful or harmful, Paul is saying it, they don't matter. They don't matter. Whether their motives are false or genuine, the message about Christ is being preached. Either way, so I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. I love this. I'm trying to learn this. Paul is saying, look, I'm happy and they can't stop me from being happy. You ever get somebody who wants to do you harm? You let them do all their work and then you just look at them and say, you know what? I'm happy and you can't stop me from being happy. It will freak them out. Number three, one of the things that causes us to be unhealthy in our thinking is when we begin to fear. Fear is the most unhealthy thing for your mind. And all of us have a, a wish to live. What Paul is going to teach us, and I'm going to roll through this real quickly with one of the greatest verses in the Bible, is that if you're a Christ follower, you have nothing to lose. At this moment in Paul's life, he's not going to live a great deal longer. Nero is on the throne. Eventually, Nero will demand Paul's execution, and Paul will be beheaded. He will write his young protege, Timothy, and he will say, the time for my departure is at hand. Paul looked at death like you and I would look at the airport when we were looking at what time our flight leaves, being, waiting, wait, being you know, called to board. Paul said to Timothy, I'm in zone four here. I'm just waiting for my, I'm waiting for my flight. <laughs> look, look, at, look at how he looked at death. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Paul is saying, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to lose. When you have nothing to lose, it allows you to live all out with the accelerator to the floor, on the focusing on the things that really matter. And even when people try to come along and get you off stride and intimidate you, Paul said this. He said, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they're going to be destroyed. In other words, when you and I are not intimidated by people who try to intimidate them, it is a sign that you're on the winning side. You say, Mark, that's, that's pretty hard stuff. I didn't know that was in the Bible. It is in the Bible, and it's how to think healthy. 
Number four, people with your destiny can afford to put other people first. There are many Bible scholars who believe this is one of, if not the greatest section of Scripture in the Bible. Some Bible teachers think it's actually part of a hymn that the people sang in the first century. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to unpack it with five major truths. You can watch these things as we scroll through them, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Real quickly, let's unpack that. There are five thoughts there. Number one, don't be selfish. Guys, all kinds of things are part of emotional unwellness. And I don't mean by any stretch to suggest that all emotional unwellness is a result of selfishness. I know that that's not the case, but I do know this. Selfishness is the fast track to emotional unwellness. Here is the thing. Selfishness will keep you from every other key that we've learned so far. If you're selfish, you can't know what really matters. If you're selfish, you have to think about what other people think about you because your self-worth comes from other people liking you. If you're selfish, you can't live with nothing to lose because you think you have all kinds of things that you can lose. Selfishness puts you on the fast track to emotional unwellness. So that's the first thing. Don't be selfish. Then the second thing we see is Paul said, don't try to impress others. Isn't that in our DNA? Don't we want to do that? Do you you realize there are two big issues with trying to impress others? The first one is it usually backfires. Isn't it true? We try to put our bus foot forward. We step in it. You guys get to be really, really old. I'm going to give away my age here. Oh, goodness. Most of you never even heard of the show. When I was a kid, real smart kid, there used to be a show called The Andy Griffith Show. And there was Deputy Barney Five. <laughs> the whole show was built around Barney trying to impress people. And every time it backfired, that's what happens to me. When I'm trying to impress people, it just looks like it always backfires. But the other thing that can happen is it can work. And that's bad, too, because how many of us have gone out on a job interview, and we tried to impress the person who was interviewing us, and in that process, we wound up communicating that we could do stuff that we really didn't know how to do, and you get the job, and you show up the first day of work, and they expect you to do it, and you're thinking, hmm, I don't know how to do that. By the way, think for a moment. Just think about your experience. Isn't it true that what impresses you the most is someone who's not trying to impress you? Isn't that a fact? I mean, isn't it true when you meet somebody and they're comfortable in their own skin? They don't, I mean, they don't care what you think about them. They just are who they are. That's impressive to me. So Paul is saying, look, don't, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. And then number, the third thing he said, be humble thinking of others better than yourselves. This is one of the greatest mental exercises. And he's not talking about an inferiority complex here. He's just saying, look, when you get with other people, you think about that person as being more important than you are. That's healthy thinking. Works in a marriage. Works raising kids. Works at work. Works with friendships. It works with strangers. When you're with people, instantly think of that person as being better than you are. Number four, don't just look out for yourself. Be interested in other people. I I know my personality. When I'm with other people, I want to tell them about me. I'm just being real. That's my first inclination. I mean, I'm living in my world. I'm I'm living my, I mean, this is the, (laughs) and I don't want to get off on this because it's not a bad thing necessarily, but this this is so much about social media. Let me tell you about me. 
Frankly, I don't want to know what restaurant you're at. <laughs> you know, it's more than I want to know. But that's, that's me. I'm the same way. I want people to know about me. I'm like the actress, you know, I don't know, remember who she was, but some diva from a previous generation. She was at a party, and she was going on and on and on about herself and how great she was. And she was talking to a, somebody she'd never met before and telling them what an awesome actress she was. And this, she'd done this and won this Oscar and all this. And finally, after about 45 minutes of her telling this person how great she was, she said, hey, enough about me. Let's talk about you. How did you like my last movie? I contrast that with the healthiest thinking person I ever knew in my life. He and his wife came to our church in 1994. I think, to my knowledge, the longest serving judge in Sedgwick County. He became one of our deacons and, well, just about my closest friend. His name was Paul Clark. He just passed a few months ago. And many of you at New Spring, if you're a longtime New Spring as you knew Paul, if not, you didn't get to know, as far as I know, I always said I wanted to be Paul Clark when I grew up. And he and I spent many days just traveling the back roads of Kansas, meeting lawyers and judges in little country towns. And so many days we'd go to lunch, and Paul was somebody that if I had something on my mind or something on my heart, I could sit down and I could just unburden and tell Paul. I, I never have in my mind, ever, never in my life have I ever met anybody who thought as healthy as Paul. Paul was in politics from 1980 on, and Paul had enemies on both sides of the political spectrum. I've never seen anybody who could be so gracious to people who disagreed with him. He was the healthiest thinking person I ever knew in my life. But those of you who didn't know Paul, you know that the last few years of his life, he had a, a, an unusual blood disorder, and nobody could really diagnose what the problem was. And the only thing that helped him for a while was transfusions. And I still remember the day we got the call here at the office that the doctors had told Paul in the midst of a transfusion, the doctors had come in and said, I'm sorry, these are not working anymore. And they had told Paul basically that he had at most two months to live. And I think if, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think he lived much to, more than a month after that. When I got the call, I dropped everything I had, ran, ran, jumped in my car, drove to St. Francis because I wanted to comfort my friend who had been so much there for me when he had gotten the word that he wasn't going to live much longer and the transfusions were not working. I raced up to his room at St. Francis where he was still on the transfusion. And I thought, how am I going to comfort Paul? Paul and Alice were there. And Alice will remember that. First thing that he said when he saw me was, Alice, I'm worried about Pastor. He looks tired. Are you kidding me? I mean, the doctors were just here a few minutes ago and said, this is not working. Two months, the most you got. I walk in and Paul said, I'm worried about Pastor. He looks tired. When we had a service, the night we had a service, I ran into a lawyer friend's mutual friend of Paul and me. He had called just the day, a couple days before Paul had passed. And he called and talked to Paul on the phone. And as soon as Paul hung up the phone, he said to Alice, I'm worried about him. He sounds like he's got a sore throat. That was Paul. But he didn't just do that the last days of his life. He did that all his life. And so when the time came where he was faced with his own death, refer back to number three. Here was a man who had nothing to lose, and he was still focused on other people. That's what I want to be. That's healthy thinking. That's healthy. You know, somebody could say, well, yeah, well, I'm just too big for that. In case we think we're too big for that, the fifth thing that we saw in the text is, remember, this is how Jesus thought. You remember when Jesus was hanging on a cross? 
brutally suffering the worst human death anybody could serve or could, could undergo. He looked at a thief who was dying, who deserved to die, and Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Think about that. When Jesus was on the cross, he thought about a thief. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he stayed on the cross because he was thinking about you and me. Who for the joy, the Bible says, that was set before him endured the cross. What was the joy? The joy was the day that you step into heaven and he throws his arms around you and welcomes you in. That's what he was thinking about on the cross. And the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus. I am running out of time. Number five, we'll go through this one quickly. Don't let difficult situations and people govern how you approach tasks. God has work for you to do, and I've told you this before, and I'll tell you again. If you're God's man and God's woman doing God's work in God's time, what you do is as important as I. Whatever it is that you do for a living, whatever your family requirements are, Whoever you are, if you're God's man, God's woman, in God's time doing God's job, your job is as important as my job. You have tasks to do. Some of you will go to work this afternoon. You have tasks to do. Some of you go home. You have tasks to do at home. Tasks can be something as, as simple as working with equipment, or it can be as complicated as working with another human being. All of us have tasks. You and I approach our tasks with a mindset. The mindset with which we approach our tasks will tell much more of the story than our proficiency doing the task. Did you know that? I could be talking to you today and you're a surgeon and you're very proficient. We have a lot of surgeons at New Spring. Now here's the thing. All the things that you learned in medical school, all the things you learned in residency, all the things that you learned with all the surgeries that you've done through the years have made you very proficient. But if something causes you to go into surgery and you're unhappy. Now, this is true whether you're a surgeon or an attorney or a pastor or a plumber or a manager or whatever it is, or a mother or a dad. Anything that causes us to go to our task and clouds our thinking will reduce our effectiveness. So here's what Paul is saying. Did you know this is in the Bible? Paul has said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without complaining. That's because the task is difficult. Something's difficult about the task. And arguing, there's somebody who's difficult. Do everything. Oh, man, I hate, I wish that word wasn't there. I wish Paul could have said, do most things without complaining. I mean, because here's the deal. You know what we do? We push back against that. and We say, well, my, my circumstances. See, I have a right to complain. I need to argue. The only way I can get anything done is to kick backside where I am. I, I've got to complain. I've got to argue. Paul, Paul didn't say there's not a legitimate reason to complain. He didn't say that there aren't difficult people. He said, do everything. You, because it's your thinking. See, it's, your, it's what's going on in here that's at stake. Paul is saying, do every task without complaining. Do every task without arguing. See, there's an emotional coloring to the aura around the task that you perform. And if you determine ahead of time that somehow you're going to find a way to do what you have to do, giving God glory with a positive spirit, not complaining, because after all, here's the deal. Any task that you and I complain about, it could be true that we wouldn't even have the opportunity to do that task. We might be in the hospital somewhere. We might be dead. We might not. See, just any task we have to do, even if it's difficult, is God, thank you for letting me live today. Thank you that you're at work in my circumstances. Yes, this may be difficult. Yes, there may be difficult people, but I'm not going to complain about it, and I'm not going to argue with the people. I'm going to do what I do, and I'm going to do it as if I'm doing it for you. 
You say, Mark, the task that I have to do, you don't know my husband. He is a total jerk, and it just makes me unhappy to have to do things for him. Well, you, <laughs> you can't keep him from being a jerk. I'll be the first to have to admit that. In essence, the full disclosure. But you can do the task without complaining as if you're doing it for God. Because it's your health that's at stake, see. It's your mental health. If you have to argue all the time to get anything done, you won't want to go to work. You may be the best, and I'm going to assume that you are the best. You may be the best at what you do. But if you have to argue to get stuff done, you're going to wake up in the morning and think, I don't want to go to work. If, if you complain all the time while you're doing what you have to do, you're not going to enjoy your work. It's going to mess with your mind. And you can spend all day long telling about why circumstances and people give you a legitimate right to complain and argue. But at the end of the day, it's your mental health that's at stake. I have five minutes to give you two that might just be the biggest of all. <laughs> Number six, I'm going to tell you I'm not very good at. When I, when I wrote this, I told Mary Alice, I said, Mary, Mary Alice can vouch for this. I said, this stuff is so good. I know I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come up with this. This is just God. I'm not very good at number six. In fact, I'm trying to find some kind of artwork to keep these seven things in front of me all the time. But number six is what I need more than anything else. And here's why. I am a world-class, all-pro warrior. I worry all the time. Bite fingernails, just my nature. You give me a scenario, I'll tell you what you should worry about. <laughs> See these lines? Those are not character lines. <laughs> those are worry lines. I am the best you ever saw at worrying. I promise you. No, and I, you say, well, I'm really good at it. No, you're, you're, you're minor league compared to me. Why do we worry? And what is it that we worry about? Isn't it true that we really don't worry about stuff we can change? If you worry about stuff you can change, your problem's not worrying, it's laziness. <laughs> don't say you worry if you're worrying about stuff you can do something about. When we don't worry about what we can change, we get on a horse and ride, don't we? We worry about stuff we can't change. We worry about things we don't have any control over. Health, circumstances, people, think for a moment. We worry about what we can't change. Listen to what Paul says about that. Don't worry about anything. Well, a few moments ago, he said, do everything without complaining. We'd like to have a little caveat there. We'd love to have one here. Don't worry about anything. In other words, nothing. Health, work, people, circumstances, economy, elections. I mean, here's the deal. If you watch cable news, you'll just have so much stuff to worry about. If you listen to talk radio, you'll be worried all the time. And then I'm not, those are not necessarily bad things, but Paul is saying, look, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he's done. And then he said you'll experience God's peace, which is better than being able to understand everything that's going on in your life. Now, here's what I want you to imagine, because here's what I felt that God showed me as I prepared for this message. For the first time, it became clear to me. I want you to envision that you're in a factory of life, and in front of you is the conveyor belt. Stuff is going to come before you just like stuff comes up in life. 
They're stuffing people down the line. They're stuffing people up the line. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever worked in a scenario like that in a factory, you know the stuff will come up the conveyor belt. That's not intended for your department. And what do you do? You just send it on up the line. If it's intended for you, then you take it off and you work with it and do your job, put it back on the conveyor belt. Now, here's what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach Mark, and I hope that all of us can grab this. What, what, what the Holy Spirit is teaching me is, look, Mark, if something comes up the conveyor belt that you can do something about, take it off the belt and work on it. But if something comes up the belt that you can't do anything about, it's not intended for your department. Send it on up the line. See, here's the thing. If you've ever worked in that kind of environment, you take something off the belt that's not intended for your department. It's not good for you. It's not good for the company. So God is saying, Mark, stuff is going to come up the belt. Things you can't do anything about. If you can't do anything about it, it's not intended for you. Put it back on the conveyor belt. Attach a thank you note. Send it up to God. And then the Bible says that when you do that, the peace of God will come over you. Paul must have looked out the window of the prison at that point because Roman guards surrounded that prison. There was a garrison of Roman soldiers that flanked that, that entire fort. And anyone who attacked that fort would have to get through that garrison. And here's what Paul said. Look, he said, when you send stuff up the conveyor, conveyor belt that you can't control, the peace of God comes like a garrison that will garrison your mind. I'm not good at this. I'm trying to learn it. I know it works. Two minutes. Number seven. <laughs> this is, a, this is a, a slam, so I shouldn't, shouldn't say it. Do you ever see a redneck estate? You know, bathtubs in the front yard. More furniture outside than inside. My dad used to take me to the junkyards when I lived in Fort Worth. Down south of Fort Worth on Mansfield Highway, there's just a whole bunch of junkyards. You go out there, they're not real careful how they organize a junkyard. Just wherever they dump the cars, the wrecked cars. On the other hand, in spring parade of homes and fall parade of homes, do you ever go look at a line of models, model homes? I am always amazed at decorators. I don't know if any of you are here decorators. I'm guessing that some of you are. But decorators just amaze me. They can take a house I don't even want, make me think I want it. <laughs> Isn't that true? And it takes something bland, ordinary, but they're so careful. They, they, they select the right artwork and the right fabrics and the right colors. And they put it all together. And they take beautiful things, things that make you want to be in that place. I mean, here's the thing. I, I have yet to go look at model homes and find people overturned, used bathtubs, put them in the front yard, <laughs> old cars up on blocks. Wouldn't that be a crazy thing? You know, spring parade of homes. Come see our, you know, our winner. <laughs> no. They're very careful. Builders are very careful. They, they want you to love the house. They want you to find it beautiful. So they go out and find beautiful things and put beautiful things in the house. And let me just tell you this. Your mind and my mind is either a junkyard or it's a model home. And we choose what's there. This and I'm through. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. This is in chapter 4, the end of the book. Fix your thoughts. See, most of us don't even know that we can do this. 
We think we have to think about whatever flits through our mind. Whatever happened, we happen to see on television. Whatever we happen to pull up on the internet. We have to think about that. No, 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 no. Somebody comes along and says something snide and catty to you. I got to think about it. No, you don't have to think about that. They don't matter. Cut them loose. <laughs> Fix your thoughts. I, I listen to XM radio. Love jazz. I got four jazz sessions. I set my XM radio in my Hyundai. I set my radio. See, here's the thing. Most of us can, we know how to, we know how to set a channel on, on, on our plasmas. We know how to set a channel on our XM radio or on the radio dial. We, we know how to set dials for equipment. Paul is saying, look, set your thinking on what? Look, fix your thoughts on what is true. You don't have to listen to a lie. And here's the thing. Many of us here, oh, I wish that I could preach a whole other sermon and I'm out of time, but many of you here are still wrestling with something someone told you that was derogatory when you were a kid. Somebody told you you were fat. Somebody told you that you were dumb. Somebody told you that you were stupid. Somebody told you you were lazy. You had a word from a parent or a teacher or from somebody in your life that unfortunately wasn't like most of our experiences with parents and teachers that were good, but you had a bad experience and somebody told you something that hurt you and right now it's still a whip and it still beats you. But you don't have to think about it because it's not true. The Bible says, fix your minds on what's true, what's honorable. It means if it's got value to it. And right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You're a decorator. Go out and find beautiful things, beautiful things to think about, beautiful thoughts. Is it just me, or is entertainment today just getting uglier and uglier? And I'm not talking about gratuitous sex. That's not good. It's been around for a long time. And I'm not just talking about violence. That's bad. It just seems to me that entertainment's getting grosser. It's because we live in a freaked out world that's going the wrong direction. Paul's saying, look, think about beautiful things. You're a decorator. Guys, thanks for listening today. We'll pick this up next weekend. See you soon.